This is Beyond Reading the Bible, where we connect you with the living Word. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. My name is Lindsay Kennedy. And my name is Randy McCracken. Randy, everyone likes a good story. That's very true, Lindsay. We all like to get caught up in a, a story, whether it's a favorite TV show that you, of course, these days with Netflix, you can really get hooked. Or maybe it's a book that you just can't put down or a treasured series of, of books. Maybe Lord of the Rings will be a lot of people's or Chronicles of Narnia or something right. different altogether. We all love a good story. And sometimes we find even when we're reading the Bible, we get caught up in the narrative yeah. and we get picked up along the storyline of the Bible. And I think that this is intentional. The Lord has given us these really amazing stories to get caught up in with amazing events happening and different elements that, that are found in great stories. We find these all in the Bible as well. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing the question of story and narrative. And so why don't you introduce us to this topic, Randy, and, and particularly the idea of the narrator. What role does a narrator play in biblical narrative? Sure. Thanks, Lindsay. And it may be that some of our listeners are even unfamiliar with the idea that mm -hmm. there is such a thing as a biblical narrator. Mm -hmm. But let me just begin by pointing out that the Old Testament itself is about 40% narrative. And if we were to include the Gospels and the Book of Acts in that uh, scripture itself, that, that percentage would probably go even higher. Mm. I don't know anyone who's given a definite percentage, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Bible's pushing a good 50% mm. or so when it comes to narrative. Yeah, well, I know that Luke and Acts, for example, make up more than half of the New Testament. There so you, you add the other Gospels in there as well, and it, I'm sure it's going to increase it. Right. Well, why don't we start with a definition of narrative, just to make sure we're all on the same uh, page, no pun intended. And then we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the biblical narrator and what we can learn from that. So a man by the name of Roy Zuck, uh, written a book called Basic Bible Interpretation, defines a narrative this way. He says, a narrative is a story told for the purpose of conveying a message through people and their problems and situations. And to put it more simply, a narrative is a story. Stories can be fictional, they can be non-fictional. And when we use the term story, um, particularly as it pertains to scripture, obviously we're not using it in the fictional sense. You and I are both firmly convinced that um, the scripture is non-fiction, mm -hmm. uh, that the history is true and accurate. And so when we speak about story or narrative, that's the sense in which we mean it. Mm, that's true. That's a good point to make because sometimes we want to avoid that term altogether story because it sounds like you're saying it's a fairy tale. Right. But by losing that, that description, you also lose the fact that like a good story, these are crafted um, records, aren't they? They're crafted to tell a, a story and, and there's a lot of similarity there that to read them, we want to read them in the same sort of way that we would read just any good book. We want to be attentive readers. That's right. I've heard some good Bible teachers say that we should sit down and read these narrative portions of the Bible as if they were a novel. Mm. And I think if we do, we can really get into the story of the Bible itself. Now, all stories have at least four elements to them, and this is true of the Bible as well. That is, there's a plot. And as you were mentioning 
earlier. There's suspense. There's a problem that's created. There's a turning point in the story where the problem gets resolved and so on. That's plot. We see that throughout the scripture. Obviously, there are characters. And again, when we use the term character, we're not saying they're not historical people. We believe they are. Uh, but nonetheless, we can use this term character in the uh, context of story. There's a setting where, where it takes place, the time in which it takes place. And then finally, there's a point of view. Every story is told from a point of view. It could be told from a first-person point of view. Or, as is often the case in Scripture, it could be told by a third person. And in this case, this is what we mean by the biblical narrator. The voice of the narrator is a device that is even used today successfully, sometimes in TV shows or, or movies. And maybe our listeners can recall a movie where the, the characters in the story are, are acting things out, but then there's these overdubs of a narrator talking about what the character might be thinking or feeling in a given moment or introducing the story and concluding the story. And we have the same sort of thing going on in scripture with biblical narrative. Right, so when you have this narrator then entering the story and speaking into it, is he simply recording objective history? Isn't he doing that? Are you, are you saying then that he would be doing something different? Yeah, um, certainly, again, just to reaffirm, we believe that, that it's history. but um, And we believe that it's objective in the sense that the Lord is, is speaking through the biblical authors to record events that actually took place. But at the same time, we have to understand that every story is selective. If, if a, an author doesn't choose certain characters to focus on, certain plots and themes to focus on, well, then the story could just go on and on and on and never have an ending. Uh, and you would never be able to um, really write a book because it would just, it would just be too much information. Uh, even historians themselves pick and choose facts when they're writing a history book. It's impossible to tell everything about an event, and it's impossible to tell everything about a character or a person. Mm -hmm. Like, if I sat here and talked about you, Lindsay, um, I could only say so much. Uh, there wouldn't be time, and I don't have the knowledge to tell everyone everything about mm -hmm. you. Right, and I guess as well you would craft that in a way where you might want to start with a certain event in my life rather than saying well on this day he was born and then he breathed his first breath and he had his first meal and all these <laughs> things but maybe you want to say you start a, a turning point in my life yeah and then you go back and and begin with history from the very beginning i've read biographies that do that and i'm sure our listeners have as well where you you have a particular way of crafting this narrative even though it's still non-fiction, it's still historical, you choose to tell that story in a particular way to make it interesting. Otherwise, it would be little more than just an encyclopedia or, or dictionary, something like that. Absolutely. So all narratives tell a story from a particular point of view. And when we're talking about the Bible, then, the, this point of view is conveyed by the biblical narrator. Now, the biblical narrator is used by the inspired authors of Scripture to guide how the reader responds to characters and events within the story. So the narrator, if he's guiding how we are supposed to be reading, then it would be important that we listen to his 
words for us and follow his cues and follow his lead. Because I'm, I'm used to sometimes reading a story and thinking, I wonder what's going on behind the scenes here. Or is this really, I bet there's, there's some things here. If we, see, if we read it this way, we can see this insight. But I suppose by following this idea that you're saying that the narrator is leading us, then really we need to be listening to what he has to say. The narrator has something that they want to tell us. And so to be good readers, we want to be following their lead rather than trying to fill in what we see as gaps or, or read in between the lines or maybe even pulling in from other books to say, well, the only way to understand this passage is to read it in light of these other passages. Really, we want to follow what they're telling us, at least to begin with, to get that picture. That's absolutely so important. And I think sometimes that's where some Bible studies can go wrong because rather than following the lead of the narrator, people start uh, asking questions that they're interesting questions. Uh, Well, what about this idea or why did this character do that? But if the narrator doesn't really tell us, then we're sort of starting off on a rabbit trail that there's no real answer for. Mm because the, the Bible doesn't tell us, and so we're just speculating, aren't we? Mm-hmm. So we, we want to clue in to the things that the narrator is telling us so that we get the message that, that God ultimately mm-hmm. intends for us to get out of a given book or out of a given story. Mm. I remember recently you gave a sermon here, depending on when the person listens, but you gave a sermon here at the church and you were speaking on David and Bathsheba, and that's such a, a controversial topic everyone has a different opinion on what was really going on, Mm -hmm. so to speak. But based on what we're saying and based on what you said in the sermon, we need to focus on what the narrator is trying to tell us because they've chosen for whatever reason not to give us all the details and to tell us what was, who was more at blame or or this this and that. But what we can work on is what we have. Right. And that's because they've given it to us. That's what's most important. Right. And in a future episode, I, I would like to talk about this idea of gaps in the story. And I think there, there are some legitimate ways in dealing with gaps where we can learn things as to why the narrator's left those gaps. And perhaps he's leaving hints that we can pick up on to understand mm-hmm. certain things. But when we go wild with it and just start speculating about all sorts of things, then that gets us off on these rabbit trails and away from the true purpose mm-hmm. of the story. So talking a little bit more about the biblical narrator, um, one of the interesting things about the biblical narrator, and this can also be true sometimes in a novel or a a movie or something, is that the narrator is omniscient. He always knows what's going on. He possesses the knowledge of each character uh, that's often not available to other characters within the story. And the narrator is capable of being anywhere and everywhere, He knows the motives and the thoughts of the characters, and sometimes he shares those with us as readers. He even knows the thoughts of God and communicates those from time to time. For instance, you were mentioning the David and Bathsheba story, and the narrator interjects at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the narrator there is telling us exactly how God feels about a, that particular event. Now, one Bible scholar, a guy by the name of Tremper Longman, has put it this way regarding the narrator. He says that the narrator gives the impression of an all-knowing mind standing behind the stories of the Bible, a mind that in the context of the canon must be associated with God himself. 
So if you want to think of the biblical narrator as being God himself, I think that that would be perfectly legitimate. And why is that important? Because then that means that whatever the narrator says, whatever insights, observations, or statements are made by the biblical narrator, they can be trusted as being true. As one Bible scholar puts it, the Bible always tells the truth in that its narrator is absolutely and straightforwardly reliable. Right, that makes a very big difference, recognizing that fact. Yeah, and we're going to be looking at some examples that show us just how important that is, because sometimes biblical interpretation has gone astray by not trusting the narrator. Mm. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the roles that the narrator plays then. What, what does the narrator actually do? Okay, yeah, let's, uh, let's give some more practical examples of things that we would find in, in narrative. As we've already mentioned, the narrator controls the plot of the story. He controls the description of the characters. And oftentimes the narrator doesn't tell us a lot about the characters, but when he does, we want to pay attention. For instance, in the story of Abigail and her husband Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, we're told that, that Nabal is an evil individual while Abigail is a wise and beautiful woman. So right there, the narrator is telling us from the beginning of that story how we should size up these two characters. The narrator will describe the interaction that goes on between the characters, sometimes by allowing us to listen in on a conversation, other times by uh, just describing the actions that take place between them. The narrator controls the, the time and the tempo of the story. How quickly does time pass or how slowly does time pass? It's interesting when Abraham goes to offer Isaac, the three days of the journey pass in one sentence. Mm. But when he's climbing up that mountain with Isaac, the time slows down considerably and we get every painful step in detail of the story. So the narrator is responsible for uh, things like giving us the setting. Where, where do the events take place? Are they in Jerusalem? Are they in the king's palace? Are they in Sarah's tent? What time of day is it? Is it the daytime, the afternoon, the evening, the nighttime? And again, usually when the narrator tells us the time of day, we, we need to pay attention to that because he's telling us that for a reason. Introducing characters into the story or into a particular scene is also something that, um, that the biblical narrator will do. And he'll introduce, as I've already mentioned, their speech or their inner thoughts. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26, that the king Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David. Well, obviously, if, if you and I were living back then and we were hanging out with King Jeroboam, we would only know he was thinking that if he chose to tell us. But the biblical narrator, being the all-knowing mind, can read the thoughts of Jeroboam and tell us uh, what was going on on the inside. So, Randy, a bit of a left-field question, perhaps, but given what you just said, should we then understand this to be giving a summary of his motives, more so than saying, at a particular point of time, he thought this verbatim thought? Would the narrator instead be telling us, well, here's a general idea of what was going on in his heart? Or is he, are we supposed to think the narrator knows that, let's say, on a Sunday at 9.30 a.m., he thought, now the kingdom may return. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and we know from studying um, ancient historical documents that usually when people were recounting historical facts, if they had a transcript of a speech or something before them, they might give that word for word. But otherwise, it was perfectly acceptable to summarize in a person's own words what was going on, mm -hmm. as long as that summary was accurate. One of the other things that a, that a narrator will do, Lindsay, is he'll describe some physical characteristic uh, of a particular individual. And as I've already mentioned, this is kind of rare, but when it happens, we want to pay attention to it. Yeah, so if this was rare, Randy, then why does it matter? If, if someone looks a particular way, what difference does that make? Why would they tell us that? Right. Well, let me give you just two quick examples of it. One is from the book of Acts. You remember when um, Stephen is, is teaching and uh, he stirs up the crowd and they take him before the Sanhedrin and he speaks before them and gives a defense of the gospel. One of the things we learn in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, the narrator tells us that the face of Stephen was as the face of an angel. And we might wonder why he says that. But as we read through chapter 7 and the sermon that Stephen gives, we see him refer to angels a number of times. And in each case, we see how Israel rejects the angels of God. And so the narrator is setting us up at the end of chapter 6 for the fate of Stephen and what's going to happen to him. If Israel has constantly rejected God's angels, we know they're going to reject Stephen and his message. That's really cool. I didn't know that one. That's yeah. great. That's a great example. It's very applicable. There are many others like that uh, in the Bible, uh, but for time's sake, I'll just leave it at that for now. And um, we'll go into uh, some particular examples, Lindsay, where we can go a, a little bit more in depth about the importance of the biblical narrator. And uh, I'm going to share one, and then I think you've actually got a couple of examples here that you can share with us. So, Lindsay, the first example that I'd like to share comes from 1 Samuel chapter 31, and it continues on into 2 Samuel chapter 1. So, 1 Samuel 31 is the last chapter of 1 Samuel, and the story continues on then in the first chapter of 2 Samuel. And this is the story of the death of King Saul. And Saul is being attacked by the Philistines, and we read in verse 2 that the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. The Philistines killed Jonathan, Saul's other sons. And then we read in verse 3 that the battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, severely wounding him. And so Saul turns to his armor bearer in verse 4 and says, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, because he didn't want to be killed and abused by the, the Philistines. But we're told that his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And then in verse 5, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Now, as we're reading through this story, we can notice that is the, the biblical narrator telling us the events that have taken place. And so we can trust this account because this is the omniscient, all-knowing mind of the narrator relating the facts. Well, the story gets a little muddied when we get over to 2 Samuel chapter 1 because we read of this man who comes to David. And he comes to David saying he has fled from the battle 
and that the people of Israel have been defeated. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5, it says, so, the David, so David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And we're told that the young man goes on to say, well, I was on Mount Gilboa. Saul was leaning on his spear. The, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And he called out to me and I said, here I am. And he said, who are you? And I said, I'm an Amalekite. And he said, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains within me. So I stood over him and I killed him. And then it says that he took the crown from Saul's head and the bracelet from his arm and he had brought them to David. Now, when you read this story, you go, now, wait a minute. <laughs> I just read a chapter earlier, a version that sounds different from this version. And it causes a, a lot of confusion sometimes for Bible readers. And they usually have one of two reactions. First reaction is, oh no, a contradiction in the Bible. What do we do? <laughs> yeah. You know, how do we solve this? And the other reaction, which is usually part of the panic of trying to solve what looks like a contradiction, is to combine the two stories somehow and say, well, okay, maybe Saul hadn't completely died when he fell on his sword. And so, Not quite dead. Yeah. yeah, so the Amalekite finished him off. Yeah. And uh, we try to fit the two versions together. Mm. The problem is when we do that, we totally miss the point that the story is trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. If we go back and remember that we can always trust what the biblical narrator says, then we know we have the correct version in 1 Samuel 31. Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him. He refused to do it. Saul fell on his own sword. After the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, and that's an important point, then he fell on his sword. This must mean then in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that the Amalekite is lying. Now, why would he do that? Well, first of all, if we read through the books of Samuel, and really even before that, from Exodus onward, we see that the Amalekites are the sworn enemies of Israel. They are constantly harassing and attacking the Israelites, and God decrees that he will one day destroy the Amalekites, which he sends King Saul to do in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Saul doesn't complete the mission, however. But in that chapter in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel refers to the Amalekites as sinners. If we bear that in mind, when we come to 2 Samuel 1, we know the Amalekites are enemies of Israel. The Amalekites are classified as sinners. So can we really believe the words of this Amalekite, especially when it contradicts the inspired biblical narrator? Mm -hmm. And so it becomes clear from that point that the Amalekite has lied and why would he lie? Well, obviously what he's hoping is to get a reward from David. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, David even confirms that because he refers back to this event. And he says, you know, this young Malachite came to me thinking he would get a reward for telling me about Saul's death. So um, we can get into trouble when we don't recognize and distinguish between the voice of characters and the voice of the biblical narrator. Mm, that's a really good example. I've definitely run into that problem before and I've heard numerous solutions to it. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it you've got motive there. You've got two different kinds of reports. One is from the narrator, one is from a character. 
And I think that's a great example of how what we're talking about here can make a difference in our reading. Yeah, and again, uh, another future episode I hope we'll do at some point, Lindsay, is um, this idea of uh, contradictions in the Bible. And, and this is one in uh, case in point where it looks like there's a contradiction, but when you understand how to read the passage, uh, it becomes actually very clear that the biblical author has told the story very well. Hmm. Yeah, I've got a couple of examples as well. For me, I was thinking of the book of Job as an example where the narrator plays an important role because Job, for example, he's a man who, who goes through this tremendous suffering and his friends come along, the three friends, and they try and understand what's happened and particularly in their mind what he's done wrong to cause this to happen. And they don't know really what happened, but not, neither does Job know really mm -hmm. what happened. But what's amazing is because we have the biblical narrator, we've got Job chapter 1 and 2 that not only introduces us to him, tells us that he's basically the most righteous man around, that his friends seem to be confused about. Right. But then we also have this scene in the heavenly court, the divine council, where we see the very inner workings behind the scenes of, of why Job is going through this experience. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of his sin. In fact, it's very much the opposite. So what's amazing is because of the narrator, we actually don't experience Job's story the way that he experiences it. Him and all the characters in his story experience it one way, but because of the narrator, we don't even begin the story through his eyes. We begin it through very different eyes. So we already know it's like watching a murder mystery and you know who the killer is from the very <laughs> first moment. It's, it's almost like he spoils the story for us, but not really because this is the way he wants us to, to hear the story and the way he wants to tell it. Yeah, and that's really good, Lindsay, because uh, as you read some of the arguments of Job's friends, they can be pretty convincing. Mm. And, and without the introduction by the narrator of what's really going on behind the scenes, we could find ourselves agreeing with mm -hmm. the three friends and going, come on, Job, just confess. You know you've messed up. Yeah, that's so true. And, and a lot of what they say, as you said, it's not incorrect at times, mm -hmm. but it's incorrectly applied to Job. And right. that's the whole point. So another example as well would just be the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John stands apart from the other Gospels. And one of the ways in which it does is it's almost as if when you watch a movie and you put on the audio commentary and you have the author or screenwriter or directors or, or characters, actors, sort of interjecting at times. And they're saying, well, here's what was going on when we were writing this or filming this. Mm. Or here's what was going on in my head. John does something quite similar where he... He interjects in the story and sometimes fills in things that the gospels, the other gospels don't tell us, or he just gives us a lot more information. It's like he's telling us this story and we're constantly reminded that he's there along with us telling us what's happening and why it's happening. Jesus says in, in John chapter 2 verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? Now if the story ended there, we would think, yeah, that's a bit puzzling. Yeah. But instead, the next verse, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And then you think, gee, thank you, John. That's yeah. so helpful. <laughs> that really, yeah, tells us what to think about that. And it even goes on and says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So even, it tells us even then, we didn't really know what was going on either. So don't feel so bad. But now that I do know, let me tell you, yeah. So he really interjects there and tells us how to understand what he's just recorded. 
That's a great example. Yeah, and another one right at the end in John is he even tells us why he's written John. So we don't always have this from, from the books of the Bible, but John himself says, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And then he goes on and says, we may know that his testimony is true, talking of himself. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 21, now there, there are many other things that Jesus did, just as you said, we could record a lot more. That's right. But were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So here he even tells us, there are many other things that I could have told you, but I'm telling you certain things. And so there's a purpose for it. That's, uh, I love that verse, Lindsay, because it's the perfect example of what we're talking about, how whenever anyone tells a story, they have to be selective. And here's a biblical writer just saying, look, I've been selective. There's no way I could tell you everything, but I have a purpose behind what I've told you. And I think you're going to share with us what that purpose is. Yeah, John in chapter 20, he actually says outright, Jesus did many other signs, just as we had said, which are not written in this book. But verse 30 of chapter 20, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here he tells us, there's many other things I could have said, but I've written these down for a specific purpose. So he's crafted his gospel in a particular way. He's included this number of miracles, as we know, the seven major miracles. And there's all sorts of things that are intentionally put together. And he's doing it with a particular purpose in mind, and he outright tells us now. Right, and I love it because there he is saying, here's my point of view. This is what I wanted to get across. This is why I told the story the stories that I did and communicated it in this way. So it's not pure, purely history in that sense. It's not purely objective, dis dispassionately telling the facts of the case. But he's actually saying, I'm an insider. I believe in Jesus. and I'm recording this so that something would happen. He's actually trying to get something across, which many people would think, well, that's he's a biased witness then. But in reality, everyone's a biased witness in some sense. And he's there firsthand and he's saying, I believe based on what I saw. He's telling you outright, well, I want you to believe too. That's why I've written this. And it's quite obvious that he would. So we should trust what he says because he was there. Right. Well, these are just a few examples of things that we can learn by paying attention to this idea of the biblical narrator. And our hope today is that if you haven't been sensitive to this in the past with your Bible reading, that it'll cause you just to ask these questions. Now, who's speaking at this moment? Is it the narrator? Is it one of the characters? Is there a contradiction going on here? Is the, are the characters contradicting the narrator? If they are, we can be well assured of one thing. Either the character has misunderstood something, has been misinformed, or the character is lying because we know that we can trust the biblical narrator. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this one, and we certainly enjoy delivering these to you. So please continue to listen and give us a rating on iTunes as well when you get a chance, especially if it's a good one. <laughs>